0: My plan for this morning, starting out our study together from Philippians, was to list several news stories, headlines at least, from various mainstream large media news outlets websites. Well, that lasted all of about three minutes in a grand total because as I began to scroll down, the first website I visited, the first and I was planning on going to four, five, six, seven. The first one, and as I began to scroll down, I started to feel gross, disgusting. (laughs) I was depressed already, three minutes, tops. So I quickly aborted that plan. I was going to list off several headlines. And as I read them, I realized, what's the use? Why even? say those things here, repeat those things. My brain was overwhelmed. I didn't want to overwhelm your brain with these depressing stories. And and to be honest, most of the headlines, not even, I didn't even click on any stories. Most of the headlines, in my opinion, failed the manure test. And as we do this more and more, and this seems to be a relatively recent thing, in human history. I'm not even that old, but I can remember not that long ago where we weren't bombarded literally 24-7, 365 and 366 on leap years, with news, and not only news, but editorialized news, and news where we were not only told the events, but how we were also told how we should think about those events. And so I've heard people say, and myself in my own mind sometimes, to be quite frank about it. There has never been a worse time to be alive. But folks, that is not true. There's nothing new under the sun. You read this in Ecclesiastes. This applies here. There's nothing new. All this stuff has been happening all along. Different flavors, different technologies, different ways to be evil and mess each other up and be hateful to one another. Sure, we're creating new ways to do that. But it's always been going on. Nothing new under the sun. And our minds are being warped. Our minds are being commandeered by the toxic environment that is all around us, that we can't escape. Let me tell you, and I'm not suggesting that you do this, and I'm, I promise you, I will not editorialize here this morning. If you want editorial, me to editorialize for you more later, come see me afterwards, and I'll give you plenty of opinions on things. But I'm not going to do that from the pulpit this morning. I will not ed- editorialize but I will tell you what I did about three, three and a half years ago, I went on a news, and I use that term loosely, fast, about three and a half years ago. And that is why when I scrolled through for the first time in over three years on that webpage, I was sickened, not by even the stories that I saw, but by how many, and the inflammatory language just on the home page. We have a toxic environment in the media, and certainly on social media. And I have not been perfect in this. I doubt very many of us have been perfect on this in the last several years. But in our text this morning, Paul, the Apostle Paul describes the mature Christian life. And I submit to you, we're going to see that's what's going on here. There is some lack of maturity even amongst us, among myself, in myself, I could tell you Over the last several years, and that's one of the reasons I had to get off, largely at least, and only post pictures of cute kids and coffee. (laughs) So, why do so many not mature? Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 is the focus here. Why do so many not mature? What exactly is holding us back? This text and how it compares to our current generation, what life is like for us in this current generation, has some answers for us. Number one, in the main part of your notes if you're taking notes faith as the bible describes it is inherently fearless say that again the biblical description of faith what faith is as described in the bible is inherently in and of itself fearless that word conduct if you're if your translation uses the word conduct In verse 27, that's actually a political term, ironically enough. It's a Greek term from which we get the word word politics. And it means in this context, to govern, to be a free citizen and live as such, maybe the, the country of your birth, the country of your residence, to conduct oneself according to the laws and customs of a state. And generally, that word means to order one's life and conduct in a certain way. So what, as Christians, what should our manner of life be? How should it be governed? What should it look like? Well, do we not know it should be filled with faith, faithful? Our lives should be governed by faith, not by fear. Where fear exists, faith cannot also exist. And we have this dual citizenship always going on. Citizenship of the country we live in, or that we were born in, or whatever the case might be, and the kingdom of God. We sometimes sing a song that's in this book quite often, I think. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Where does that come from? What is that, a biblical thought? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God, if that's you, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, not fear. Not being filled with fear by media, things you see on social media, that is not victory. That is not going to overcome the world. Faith, faith, and where fear exists, faith cannot also exist. But Ryan, does, does, how, how do, what do we do when fear does creep in? Now listen, this does not mean fear won't occasionally creep in, it absolutely will. The question is when fear does creep in, how do we respond? That's what makes the difference. How do we respond? How do we react to the bad news that is in no short supply all around us, everywhere we looked, even if we're trying to ignore it, it still somehow creeps in, and maybe fills us with fear. What do we do? How do we react? When the forces around us breathe threats, how do the faithful react? I want to read John chapter 16, verses 32 and 33. Jesus speaking to his disciples as he was about to depart, and they were about to be on their own. Obviously, this was said primarily in that day and time to them, but by principle, It absolutely also applies to us. Jesus said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world." Folks, the world around us offers nothing but turmoil and strife. I'm not saying every day, every person is constantly trying to do that, but on balance, on the whole, the world is all about turmoil and strife. And that's all a lot of these news stories are designed to do. Create turmoil and strife, separate us, make us hate each other. That's all they're designed to do. That's the world. Should this be a surprise to us? It should not. Jesus said it a long time ago. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now here's the good news, part of the good news, about the good news, is that God is patient and gracious and understanding towards our weaknesses. When fear does creep in, and it will, none of us are perfect on this. When our faith wanes and fear begins to take over, he is patient toward us. However, he does expect us and require us to go forward in faith. In other words, don't sit there in fear and let that fester and take over. Take a wake-up call. Get back to faith. Go forward in faith. The Bible is very clear. Faith cannot mature and strengthen without trials. It cannot. That's how our faith really grows. Adversity, I suggest, is God's most effective tool to develop a truly strong and mature faith. That pattern is quite evident in scripture. So God takes each one of us through fearful situations, whatever it may be. And as we learn to obey God's word and allow God's word to saturate our thoughts, we find each trial, instead of being a disastrous death knell to our faith, it begins to become stepping stones. Those trials, if we go forward in faith and conquer fear, those trials become stepping stones to elevate us to a higher level. Kelly led us a few minutes ago in higher ground. I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright. The chorus says, Lord, lift me up. And then it talks about this higher plane. I want to find this higher plane than I have found. It's what this is all about. We're going to get more of that in just a minute. But that's it. These stepping stones to a stronger and deeper faith, going to a higher plane than the absolute mire. You know what mire is? Farmers know what mire is. <laughs> it's disgusting stuff. Mud and animal droppings and all manner of disgustingness. Instead of staying buried in the mire of this world that Jesus talked about where there would be tribulations, incessant over and over, instead of staying mired in this world, we're looking for that higher plane. But it doesn't happen by accident. We're not just gonna, ooh, hey, what do you know? I just stumbled onto this higher plane, what, awesome. It doesn't just happen like that. Absolutely not. We're we'll gonna talk about that more in a minute. But if we genuinely believe this, that the trials in life can actually act as stepping stones, if we press on through faith instead of fear, if we actually and genuinely believe this, our faith will be fearless when virtually everyone around us is overcome with fear by the worries of this life. And what a contrast that will be. Second main point here, in carrying out this fearless faith, this is absolutely essential. Number two, Christ is all. Without him, fearless faith is literally impossible. In this letter of the Philippian letter to to the Philippian church, Paul is encouraging these people to remember. Specifically remember what? Remember the gospel that saved them, the gospel that brought them all together when they were all fractured apart from one another, the gospel that made them family, the gospel that secures them second by second for the glorification of eternity so that they will hold all else loosely and ultimately fear nothing. Hold everything else in life loosely, not to just necessarily let it all go. You're not going to let your family go, you're not going to let your job go, of course not. You hold it, but you hold it loosely. Because when Christ is your pinnacle, the treasure in life, all else is a distant second. Absolutely. Fearless faith results from holding on to Christ as our treasure. And if we believe that our reward in heaven far surpasses all comfort, all convenience, All collections of anything and everything of the world, we too would be willing to consider them loss for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3, also from Philippians, a little bit later in the letter here, I'll read it for you, verses 8 through 10. Indeed, Paul speaking again here, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And if you know anything about the life of Paul, what he suffered after he became a Christian, you know what he's talking about. This man suffered tremendous loss on every level, any kind imaginable. He says, he continues, For his sake, for Christ's sake, I had suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Does God promise good days? It depends what you mean by that. Does He promise us that every day will be great, health and wealth, and all good things? He doesn't promise that. If you read the Bible carefully, God does not promise good days. Will we have good days? Of course, we will. I think for the most part, most of us, at least in this room, most of our days will be relatively good, but these are not promised. What's in focus in the gospel in the scriptures? not the good days but a great eternity stay focused on eternity colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 if then you have been raised with Christ is that you this morning in this room if you have been raised with Christ here's the instructions for you ready seek the things that are above where Christ is doesn't that make sense if we are christians disciples of christ Shouldn't we be setting our minds on Christ and where is he? He's above. Set your mind on spiritual. That only makes sense. Don't be mired in the garbage of this world. Too much. <laughs> Hopefully, less and less as days go on. Set your, seek, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above. You, you understand what it means to set something? Uh, <laughs> here's a great example of unsetting something. Kelly slept in too much this morning, a little bit, (laughs) because she had unset her alarm for Sunday. She had changed it. So you see, you unset it, and problems begin to arise. Set your mind. Set it. Set it. It doesn't mean flirt with it. Come and go. I'm going to, you know, occasionally give a spiritual thought, give a heavenly thought. Set your minds. More on this in a few minutes. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Where is is God? Where is Christ? Above. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Doing this changes everything. And if I had to be honest, if you want to boil this entire discussion down to one 60-second statement, there it is. Change where your mind is. That's it. That's what we're talking about this morning. Main point number three, strive to live worthy of the gospel. The title of the lesson is life that is worthy of the good news. What is worthy? Can, can, can our life be worthy of the gospel? I thought we were unworthy. I thought, you know, Christ didn't die for us because we're worthy. That's not what this means. Here, worthy means of equal value, equal value or compatible. In other words, our conduct should match the gospel. Not that we deserved Christ dying on the cross. We didn't. That's not what this is saying. It's saying our conduct should match up with, with what the gospel says. Does our conduct reflect the greatness of Christ? It's like when you go to try on new clothes or you go to the tailor. Like when I went to the, have them you know, do the suit for me and get all the measurements right. You know, If, if they had made it like a... <laughs> something to fit Titus, would not have matched very well, would not have looked just right. If they had made it to, you know, oh, this is a a suit that, you know, Andre the Giant or whoever, some huge basketball player, seven foot seven basketball, it wouldn't look right. And that's the point. Needs to look right, it needs to match. Our life needs to match the gospel. Now here's a question, and it's a question only you can answer for yourself. It's not for me to answer, it's not for me to judge. This is for you. Answer it within yourself. Am I trying to mold my life to look right when it's laid alongside the gospel? Or am I trying to mold the gospel into something that fits my current lifestyle? That's the question. And then verse 27 back in our text here for just a second. The second half of verse 27, Philippians 1 verse 27, it talks about striving side by side or striving together. That's one Word in the original language. The side-by-side element is crucial, and I want you to remember that that phrase, side-by-side. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. But striving—what do you, what do you, what, what kind of imagery does that conjure up? Striving—does that conjure up sort of a casual, eh, lackadaisical situation? Striving is using everything you've got. Watch the runners in the Olympics. Watch those rowers in the Whatever it's called, the long canoe. If any of you watched, I feel like I'm the only one that watched any Olympics this year. I don't know, like, but like, but we Kelly and I love the Olympics. We catch all we can, but, but when it's one individual, one man or one woman running that race, or if it's at the long canoes, the rowers, and it's like either two of them or four of them or up to like six of them, I think, and you watch them and you watch their muscles, it's incredible. They're giving everything they have because that's. That's what they trained for for years. They are striving and giving it everything. That's what Paul tells us to be doing, striving together for the faith of the gospel and for each other and for the cause that we are in this together for. But what happens when we're pulling in different directions? Let's just just imagine that. So if you're in one of those long rowing races, like 5,000 meters, and all of a sudden, you know, two of the ladies start rowing this direction and two of the ladies start rowing this direction, and one of them starts rowing backwards, what happens? It's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. That boat only goes in the right direction if they are all striving and striving together. And what happens when we, any of us, are too entangled in the cares of this world? you familiar with The parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13, it gives the various types of soil in the parable. And then Jesus goes on to explain each of those types of soil. And the thorny one, you remember what he said about the thorny one? The thorny one is the one who hears the word, but then is entangled in the what? The cares, the worries of this world. I fear in our generation, in the last decade, in the last year and a half especially the thorns are taken over far too much Now, well, certainly among the people of the world absolutely but this is this is different the thorns amongst us amongst the people of God taking over so let's make some quick application to this a few things number one be quick to point to God and give him the credit For your hope, for your strength, for your love during these times of uncertainty and fear. Even in the midst of chaos. I'll say that again in case you're taking notes. That was a long one. Be quick to point to God and give him the credit for your hope, your strength, and love during times of uncertainty and fear. Are we living in times of uncertainty and fear? We are. Is it any different than ever? No. Except for the fact that we hear about it everywhere we turn. I think that's the only difference. And it's making it worse. Uncertainty and fear amongst our friends a family, amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. So even in the midst of chaos, our eternity is secure. And that should give us faith and hope and love, even in the midst of chaos. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. If I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Number two, application point. We must please God rather than people. It's a direct statement, direct quote from Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. We must please God rather than people. Becoming, listen, please listen. Becoming obsessed with what people think is the quickest and most sure way to forget what God thinks. I'll say that again. Becoming obsessed with what people think is the quickest way to forget about what God thinks. And in that vein, showing off our virtues on social media, on a bumper sticker, wherever it is, showing off our virtues has become sport in our generation. But listen, we will never be able to please the masses. Never. Christian or not child of God or not, believer or not, no one will ever be able to please the masses. Jesus couldn't please the masses. That goes without saying. Darn sure we're not going to be able to please the masses. We will never be able to please the masses. Why? Because people are fickle. And Jesus said it, in this world you will have tribulation and turmoil. People are fickle. God is not. We must please God rather than people. Application point number three, we are staring down a prime opportunity to exert our influence for Christ and the gospel every moment of every day. And this is, this is kind of a, just an observation of my own and a thought of my own. You might agree, you might not. But I wanna to suggest to you that at this time, in this place, in this environment in which we live, I can think of almost nothing that would more powerfully reflect the security and the hope of our salvation than the simple act of worrying less about certain topics than the rest of the world. Certain topics. Just worry less about all that noise out there than the rest of the world. Because God remains God regardless of how the economy is performing, regardless of the latest pandemic. Regardless of who is in power, in any given nation of the world. This last election that we had in November, I heard some people, much as I was trying to block most of the noise out, you can only do so much. But I heard some people saying, listen, God is in control, whoever wins any election, this election, God is in control, Jesus is king, all this stuff. And then some people were like, oh, that's so cliched, we still need to start the argument. No. I don't think that's cliched at all. That's what the Bible says. God is in control, indeed. It doesn't matter who wins any election, in this nation or any other nation. Who's the president of Turkmenistan, and why does that affect me? Let me be honest with you. It doesn't. Why should I care? Set my mind on things above. We're gonna say more about this in just a minute. Prove your conviction of that truth that God is in control by remaining calm in the middle of an unceasingly panicked society. If you are calm when the rest of the world is freaking out and panicked about every news story on all of these websites, don't you think that's going to stand out like a sore thumb? It absolutely will. You familiar with the term water cooler talk, that that adage, the water cooler, you know, talking around the water cooler at work, at school, wherever? What does your water cooler talk sound like? Is it contributing to the frenzy and the the hand-wringing and the fear and the doom and gloom? If it is, I, I I would ask, how is that pointing people to Christ? On the flip side, if you can be calm about that and let some of those things roll over you and divert the conversation away from that and talk about, well, listen, you know, I get that, I hear where you're coming from, but my hope is in Christ. God is my king, he is in control, he's always in control, he knows all this that's going on, and however you want to put that, you don't have to say it like that, you can can be more tactful about it, of course, but I'm just saying, if we can slip some gospel into the water cooler talk at work, at school, out on the town, wherever it is, and how about if you have kids or grandkids, if they hear you lamenting all the time, and freaking out about every story that comes up on the website or the TV station or on social media. How about that? How do, you, how do you think that affects them? I can remember when I was probably 10, 12 years old and presidential elections were going on back then and all I knew of it were what I heard my parents, not to drag them through the mud too much, but all I knew of it were what I heard my parents saying and other adults. And it was doom and gloom, no matter who your candidate was, you know, the world was gonna end if this guy won, the world was gonna end if that guy won, both sides. And as a 10 or 12 year old, whatever I was, I'm like, what, you know, kids, 10, 12 and and younger, believe you when you say that kind of stuff. I know I did. And so with my own two, I'd be very careful how I engage this stuff and how my water cooler talk at home is and what they're hearing me dwell on. Very, very dangerous. Number four, and finally, and here's what we're getting down to, and this is kind of a nuts and bolts section here for you, just for a couple minutes. What I think would be a good idea, based on what we've seen here this morning. Turn off the bad news. Turn toward the good news. The human mind has a certain capacity, some more than others, to absorb and reflect on thoughts and ideas, principles, even the most capable, brilliant, voluminous human mind has a set limit. And if we are preoccupied with the news and editorialization as media presents it, how much time do we really have left for the loftier things, the things that we're supposed to be thinking about as disciples of Christ? You've heard the the phrase, the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Wouldn't you say that also applies to our minds? Idle minds are the devil's workshop. But if we will rearrange our minds and free up the space, we may be devoting to reading bad news item after bad news item. We will find ample time for thinking on the lovely things. Our goal, I would suggest to you, is to keep the big things big. And what are the big things? The biggest of big. Our God in heaven. Christ. The Son of God at his right hand. Our salvation. Our salvation the heavenly home that awaits us, the fellowship that we have amongst ourselves that should be unbreakable by outside forces of the world. These loftier things, there will be ample space to think about those lovely things. And the big things will be big, the small things will be small. Listen, it's not who, who the governor of New York is not, you know, it's not interesting on some level, but it's not God of the universe, big. It's not God of the universe important. And I want us to just remember this for a minute. Just a a practical suggestion that we remember this. Wise as serpents. When we go into this. Your fear, my fear. Our anger. About the news. That equals clicks. That equals ratings. Ratings. And you know what that equals? Advertisements. You know what advertisements equal? Money. Wise as serpents. Hundreds of millions of dollars generated by our fear, by our division, by our strife amongst each other, by our hating one another. Hundreds of millions of dollars, probably more like billions and billions of dollars nationwide every single year. The sermon title this morning, A Life Worthy of the Good News. It's a double meaning. Our lives should be worthy, that is, matching the gospel, but also our lives are worth the benefits of, of focusing on good things. What are some of the benefits? The practical daily, you can feel them, everyday benefits of focusing on good things. I have never, until recently, had as many friends and family and acquaintances and coworkers who suffer from different types of anxiety, it's, it's out of control. And it's no wonder. If they are focusing on the things of this world and letting the news guide their thoughts more than the gospel, it's no wonder. I would be depressed too. If I hadn't taken that, three, that news fast three years ago, I would be depressed. I would be anxious. I'd be wringing my hands all the time. The benefits of focusing on good things. Peace. Remember what Jesus says? In the world you will have tribulation, but I bring you peace. The benefit of a healthy mind, a joyful mind, a content mind. So that sermon title is a double meaning. A life worthy of good, the good news. We should, our lives should be matching the good news, but also is not your life, is not your mind worth the peace and serenity, relatively speaking, peace and serenity? An assurance that comes by turning off the bad news and turning toward the good news. Doing the second thing, turning off the bad news, turning toward the good news, makes doing the first thing, that is, making your life look like the gospel looks, a lot more doable. But if my thoughts are mired in this world, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to make my life look like the gospel and match up the gospel. I want to leave you with Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is Paul wrapping up this letter, the same letter we've been looking at this morning largely, and I want to leave you, the Glen Allen church and visitors, with this thought, his own words, and ask you a question. Philippians 4, beginning verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, and I treat Syntyche, two, two women, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me. Remember I told you we'd get back to that phrase that he used in chapter 1? There it is again. These people have labored side by They have striven, they have strove, striven with me side by side for the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Can we do that? Can we say amen to that? I think we can. We should. We need to. This is my appeal to you this morning. Please think about these things. Kelly, let's stand and say.